right, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to do all of chapter 3. That will finish the book. Um, and this is a book that, uh, again, has been a great blessing. It was a blessing to that church. It's a blessing to this church. I entitled this Bible study, Bad Company. And uh, you've probably heard the, the old adage, one bad apple spoils the barrel. By the way, that's actually true. I, 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 when I heard that, I just had to go and look it up, right? And a bad apple emits a gas, ethylene. And that gas is what produces ripening to the point of rotting. Well, apples, people, it's all the same. Um, if you introduce a bad person, a, a, a troublemaker, into the midst of people who are, who are working together, who are, who are good, um, typically that bad individual is going to corrupt good people. Paul the Apostle actually said this in First, uh, first Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. He said, evil company corrupts good habits. He was actually speaking to the Greeks, and he quoted, that actually is a quote from a Greek playwright known as Menander. And he's, he's kind of spitting back to them some of the wisdom from their own plays and poetry because it's a universal principle. You'd like to think that if you introduce a troublemaker into a functioning, loving group, that they would be modified or changed for the good. And generally that happens, but very often it goes the other way. And, uh, and so the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, is providing us with warning about how such troublemakers in the midst of the church can actually hinder the word of God from going forth. And so in this last chapter, Paul has two concerns or two things that he's, he's promoting to these people in Thessalonica. The first is that he's urging them, he's encouraging them to pray that the gospel would continue to go forth both through him directly, Paul, the apostle, but also through them at that church in Thessalonica. This is kind of what I just prayed when we closed worship, isn't it? It's like, Lord... Use us, equip us, strengthen us, humble us, but also give us boldness that we could continue the word of God moving forward. Because when the Lord comes back for his church, that's it. And we want as many people in that church that gets called up to the Lord as possible. And this was Paul's greatest concern, too, is that the word would continue to go forth. He planted churches in the hopes that each one of those churches would be a beacon of light to the people in that community. But then the second thing that he adds in this last chapter is some, some words of wisdom on how to deal with, uh, with the hindrance of troublesome people in the midst of the church. And I must say, uh, this is one of the most challenging aspects of being the church, is being able to keep ourselves on track and keep ourselves protected from influences that might hinder the work of God. And, and it's something that Frankly, pastors don't like to deal with that much because it's uncomfortable. It's not, it's not enjoyable to have to deal with somebody who you can clearly see is undermining or hindering the work of the church. And it's like a minor trouble that you might have with your car. And, and it's bothering. It's, it's making things difficult. But you kind of ignore it because you just don't want to deal with it. And before you know it, you have a major breakdown uh, or a car failure. And so, um, obviously, Paul wants to, uh, to keep the Thessalonican church on track 
and to warn them about, look, these things are going to happen. We, we like to think that the enemy is completely outside the four walls of the church, but that's not always the case. Sometimes the trouble is from within, and he wants them to be uh, wise about that and give them advice on how to deal with it. So if you would, please stand with me. For right now, we're just going to read the first five uh, verses of the chapter. And here is where he makes his plea that they would pray for the furtherance of the gospel, both through Paul and also through their church. Here's what it says. Finally, brethren, pray for us. And that would be Paul and his little team. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both that you would do and will do the things we command you now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ heavenly father God I pray just as Paul urged us that we, Lord, would be attentive to the work of the ministry, Lord, to bringing forth the truth of the gospel to all that we come before, Lord. The ministry that you give us as whoever is in front of us, Lord. And so I pray that this word would go forth and would touch the hearts of people here that they may bring the truth to others in their sphere of influence, Lord. Lord, as your, as your servant this morning to speak these words, for you and for these people, I pray, Lord, that nothing would issue forth from me but that which is exactly what you want your people to hear this morning. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you look there at the first verse, he's saying, pray for us. This would be Paul and Timothy and Silvanus. They are the itinerant church planters and gospel purveyors. And so he's, he's begging on this church to pray for them in the work that they're doing, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. So he's saying not only for us, but also for you, because you're, you're, you're commissioned at, in the same way that we're commissioned, which is to take the word and bring it forth. And notice he uses the words that the word of the Lord would run swiftly. And he's there alluding to a verse out of Psalm 147, verse 15, where we read there, He, God, sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. And of course, we live in, a, in an age of uh, digital interconnectedness, the likes of which the world has never known before. And so we have greater means today than ever before to spread the gospel. And this is a wonderful thing. Unfortunately, the very same technology has been used to undermine the gospel. And I'll make a mention of that in a moment here. But um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Men, we studied this not that long ago. We learned there that the words of God formed the very world in which we live. God spoke the world into existence. That's the power of his word. And when that word goes forth, it changes Lives. I was shocked and dismayed, especially in the uh, days following the passage of um, um, Charles Stanley, the famous preacher from Atlanta. I've actually attended his church a few times and, um, and you know, I've taken advantage of some of the resources that he's put out through his, uh, through his ministry. But his son, Andy Stanley, 
who now has a mega, mega church in the greater Atlanta area, is somebody that you'd like to believe because of the influence of his father that he stays true to the word of God. But I saw a video actually uh, this past week where he, he was essentially making the case that there is no conflict between evolution as the explanation for where everything comes from and the word of God. And he, he gave, this was before his church, and he gave a, a, a detailed dissertation on how evolution is simply a method by which God created everything. And there are many, many people in the world today who believe that. The problem is, to, in order to hold that view, you have to have an astoundingly low view of Scripture. Scripture does not make any room for a process that takes millions and billions and billions and trillions of years to bring about all that we see in creation. God is very specific in those first chapters of Genesis as to how things came to be. And that very account is then validated, repeated, and, and justified throughout the Bible, including the very words of Jesus Christ. And so to, to believe that man and woman actually came through a process of evolution whereby our origins were the very elemental creatures and elements of the earth and that our our image as a creature is something that was created haphazardly is just undermining the word of God. We are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God, not image bearers of random processes that go on for untold ages. This is the kind of thing that we face in our day is that people, pastors in the midst of the greater church, influential people that literal millions of people listen to every week are undermining the power of the word of God. And this is why he says that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. Instead of being trashed by people who just don't understand it. Paul would write in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. We'll get there in not that long a time. He says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. So what Paul is saying is. I can be hindered. I have been hindered. I, Paul, have been jailed, beaten, persecuted, kicked out of town, kicked out of the temple environs. But the word of God has not changed and it will run swiftly throughout the world. We get a little part in that. But believe me, I, I've never harbored the idea that, but for me, the word of God is not going to go out here. God can raise up the very stones of the ground to bring his word to people. But he says there in verse 2, as part of the prayer, he's asking them to pray for him. He adds, oh, and by the way, also that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. Now, he's speaking there very specifically about what's going on right in the midst of, of, the, of the people who profess to be the church of his time. Now, they had plenty of things to pray about concerning external persecution. Persecution from Jewish synagogues in any of the cities that they were in. Uh, persecution from the Roman Empire. Persecution from pagan people who were just annoyed 
with Christianity in general. But that's not what he's addressing here. He's addressing those people who are closest to the people who are bringing forth the word of God. And he, he identifies this here as a hindrance. But then he goes on to say that the Lord is faithful in verses 3 and 4. He's faithful to keep us from evil and to empower us both to will and to do what he's called us to do. You might remember we've quoted a few times in here Philippians 2.13 that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so God is faithful. He says there in verse 3, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both that you do and will do the things we command you. See, he's, he's basically paraphrasing what he would ultimately write in the book of Philippians. And so we can see trouble in the midst of the church. And maybe for a lot of you folks, you don't quite see it as much as somebody like me who's actually engaged in the process of preparing text to bring before you. But believe me when I say what we see right now in the midst of the greater church is a battle. It is a battle. And I'm not just talking about what the government thinks of us, what secular people think of us. That, that we, we draw a lot of comfort when we're getting that kind of persecution because, frankly, that tends to bring the church together and strengthen it. But it's when we have people in our midst who are preaching things that are clearly not of the Lord. I saw just today that there are something like 290 different Methodist congregations in North Carolina that are now petitioning the greater Methodist church to leave the church because of fights over doctrinal issues. The doctrinal issues being how the Methodist church deals with the whole LGBTQ plus, I can't even believe I can say that, uh, issues. And, and the basic position of the church is to accept that. But there are a lot of a lot of congregations in North Carolina and elsewhere, um, in fact, I think a lot of the Methodist congregations in other countries have disassociated with the Methodist church here for that very issue. And these things are going on because people within the church are preaching things that are clearly in contravention of the word of God as being normative. To even think that we could come together as people of the church and vote on what we will approve as if we had any authority to do so. The Lord has given us his word. There's no vote required. We don't get a vote. We don't get a focus group. Our, all of our opinions are not as good as everybody else's opinions. This is something that's taught in our schools, and it's hogwash. It's hogwash. Let's all collect our trophy for 27th place. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what's wrecking the church. And so Paul, Paul is saying, look... You can see this stuff and you can get exercised about it. Not me, but other people could get exercised about it. And, uh, and, and we could feel like we're hopeless, all is lost. God is always in control. And as perverted as some of these doctrinal issues are, they are all part of moving the history of humanity along to the point that God determines he will take his church out, he will bring judgment upon the earth, and then he will return to reign and rule. And as much as, we, um, as much as we get troubled by this, the Lord is not bound. The word is not bound. He gives us uh, in here, uh, in verse 5, he gives us motivation for why we need to obey him. Why, why the, the church in Thessalonica should, should take on what Paul is sharing from the Lord 
and do it and believe it and share it. And it brings to mind there are a lot of reasons why or a lot of motivations why we tend to obey authority. Uh, fear. A lot of people obey authority because of fear, whether it be from government, whether it be from a bully or whatever. Fear is a motivator for obedience. Uh, a desire to get paid, a desire to be enriched, the boss, so to speak. We obey the rules of the boss because we're looking for a paycheck. Uh, for personal uplifting, for prominence, for reputation, our peer group, we might be willing to obey the norms of a particular group that we might be well viewed within that group. None of these are motivations necessarily for obeying the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so that's understood. But the two motivations that he gives here for why we should take on board what Jesus commands us and do them. The first, he says there, now may the Lord direct your hearts, this is verse 5, into the love of God. We sang the song last week, Kindness. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. That's right out of Romans. It's the Lord's kindness, his long-suffering, his grace, his mercy that breaks us down. It breaks us down. It's amazing that the word of God ministered to us by God is done in such a soft way that it breaks one of the strongest things about the sinner, which is pride, which is self-concept, which is our sense that we are in control and we need to be in control. And he doesn't beat that down with a rod. He, he dissolves it with love. The love of God is what leads us and draws us to him. The other motivation he gives there in verse 5, he alludes to it when he says that... Uh, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now, there's a lot of ways you could read that, but one of the ways, the principal way here is the Lord is going to return one day. We, we, we as people living, trying to walk a Christian walk in a fallen, broken world, we're ready any second. I mean, like now, please, Lord, can we go now? When are we, when are we leaving? When are we leaving? But the Lord tarries, but we know he's coming. And we want to be found well-doing when he comes. And so this anticipation of the Lord and living bathed in the love of the Lord are the things that Paul offers to them as in these first five verses, he's encouraging them, look, pray for us, pray, pray with us, pray that the word of God runs swiftly through us, but also through you. And don't don't lose heart when you see things that are happening within the church that you think, well, this church is broken or this church is dysfunctional or whatever it is because the Lord can obviously uh, triumph over that and does. So now between verses 6 and 15, he gets very specific in warning about bad company in their midst. Now, the, the principles that Paul lays out here are, are principles that can be used in a lot of different contexts. But he is speaking to a very specific context in this church that was reported back to him. We've already talked uh, in uh, chapter 2 about how he had to review with them again the, um, the things that he taught them about end times. He had taught them very, very completely about last days. He talked, to, uh, talked them about the rapture 
revealing of the son of perdition, the great tribulation, all of these things. But those teachings got corrupted after Paul left because men came in seeking to merchandise a false gospel by telling people you're already in the tribulation and you need us to be in your midst to teach you about this. And these people became leeches on the church because they weren't working any longer. Now they were professional uh, preachers of a false gospel living off of the resources of the church. So here's, let's just read the verses between 6 and uh, 15. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Paul is saying from him. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner not working at all but are busybodies now those who are such we command and exhort through our lord jesus christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread but as for you brethren do not grow weary in doing good and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed yet do not count him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother now, there's a lot of things going on there that, uh, that he is speaking to them about. You can see very clearly in that text that there were people that came into the midst. And by the way, this was a pattern that beset Paul in his, his itinerant missions around uh, Asia Minor and Europe. As he would come into a place, he would lay out true doctrine. He would give them the gospel. He would speak to them of end times. He would speak to them about how one gets saved. He would school them on the doctrine of grace. And no sooner would he leave than these evil individuals would come in behind him and pervert his doctrine. And there were all manners of of different flavors of this kind of perversion. And, uh, And this is exactly what happened in Thessalonica was because of what he taught them about end times. And we get some of the best descriptions of that time in First and Second Thessalonians. It's where we really get an understanding along with 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of the doctrine of the rapture. And yet these individuals came in after Paul. And because there was a lot of trouble at that time, there was a lot of persecution. You know, we we get antsy when somebody says something in news media about Christians that's derogatory and we think we're suffering persecution. There are other places in the world, uh, Iran, China, India, West Africa, oh, all of Africa really, where people are not only being ill-spoken of, they're being beaten, they're having their homes burned down and some are even being killed. And uh, I don't believe that the time is too long before we might be seeing a ramp up in persecution here. But because that's going on there, these individuals came in and took advantage of that 
to tell the people, look, folks, don't look now, but you're in the tribulation right now. And just stick close to our teaching and we'll help to guide you through that. And oh, by the way, because we're going to put so much effort into this teaching that we're not going to be able to work our trade or work in the fields or anything like that. So uh, we're, we're begging on the church to support us. And apparently that was going on. And so what, uh, what Paul is recommending here, and this, this seems harsh, frankly, but I think it's necessary. First of all, he says, look, look at our example. When I, Paul, and my cohort were with you, look at our example. We are true apostles of God. Paul accepts and teaches that people who spend their life ministering the gospel have the right from God, basically, to take their living from the ministry. So Paul is not arguing that point. He explains here that we, me, Paul, and Timothy, and Silvanus, we didn't take our living from you because we were concerned about making sure that what what you were doing with us was receiving us for the word of God. And we were not going to do anything that would trouble you about what our motivation was in bringing you the word of God. Then he contrasts that with what these individuals were doing. They were bringing, they were bringing false doctrine into the church for the very purpose of merchandising it so that they might make money from it. And this is why it's so troubling to see in our day this whole wealth, health, prosperity gospel burgeoning in many different forms throughout America and indeed throughout the world. It is, it is nothing more than a money grab by people who are cloaked in the appearances of ministry but have no heart for the people and certainly have no heart for God. And so they take a false gospel, they pervert the purpose of prayer, they pervert our understanding of the grace and mercy of God, the purpose of God, how God works in one's life. They invert and pervert all of that for no other reason but simply to gain financially. And, and I do not want to even witness the punishment that is due for people who lead others astray by, by merchandising a false gospel. And this was what was going on. They are showing an example to the people of not working. You know, there are some folks uh, who name the name of Christ who believe that somehow um, working can, can be unspiritual. Like, like if you work a secular job, oh, you're just after money. Uh, yeah, I mean got to clothe ourselves, got to eat, got to have a roof over our heads. There's nothing unspiritual about working. In fact, we were made to work. In, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to sip mimosas by the pool. <laughs> no, it says he put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. God could have just put the garden of Eden on autopilot. It waters itself, it pulls out weeds, it you know, fertilizes itself. He didn't do that. He put man in that place to work. And there is something, in my view, there is something spiritual about work. That was one of the great examples that my father gave me. 
My dad worked hard. He didn't work extremely high-paying jobs. He, was con- he worked construction, sheet metal. He was a working man's man. And I think I mentioned this to you before, but I actually drew comfort from my dad coming home and there, he'd be working all day, hot, sweaty, and there'd be that, that man smell of perspiration. And it just, I mean, it sounds gross, but in a real way, it was kind of a comforting thing that this is a hardworking man. He does that for us. And I loved him for that. And I think between me and my brothers and sisters and now my children, they all have, one thing I did instill in them was a good work ethic because it's, it's the right thing to do, to work for your family, to provide for your family, to take, take your life and, and, and give it to others through work. It's a wonderful thing. And this is what Paul is, is telling him here. Uh, and, and he uses his own example and, and Paul provides a standard of conduct that he wants people to follow in this church. Verse 12, he says, now those, who are, uh, those who are, sorry, now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, let me just say this. There are people in our midst who for one reason or another can't work. Paul's not speaking against that. In fact, the church is called to come around those who cannot help themselves and help them. He speaks, uh, Jesus speaks uh, in several places about uh, ministering to widows and to orphans. But widows indeed, you know, he makes that distinction because I, I think there were women of that day that uh, maybe took too, too much advantage of that status. But for people who are unable, either due to physical infirmity or, or some other thing, or elderly and they don't have means, we're there to help them. Um, he even says there in verse 13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. We're still c- commanded to be benevolent. We're still commanded to be gracious and loving. But for the person who is able to work and simply chooses not to and then looks to others to, to keep them afloat? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, he says there, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that, the, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. So Paul is literally going to the state of saying, if somebody in your midst is pretty much just latching on to the good graces of the church and refuses to work, they are be, to be disfellowshipped not as a means of hurting them, not as a means of showing hate or disrespect to them, but as a means of shaming them into accountability with the word of God. He says right here in the passage, if, in verse 10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, this is why a lot of people within the church and even pastors find it hard to follow this kind of advice, to tell somebody, look, if you're not willing to work, because we know you can, don't look to us. If you're not going to work, you're going to have a hard time eating. Now, that sounds very hard-hearted. It sounds very uh, aggressive. But this is where people get a misunderstanding of love as, as outla- outlined in the Bible. This is, this is why, for example, uh, there's been so much compromise against the word of God within the church. This is why uh, inclusivity has elevated itself 
as the highest virtue, even over revealed truth. And this is simply perverted, a perverted notion of love. If you truly love someone, you want for them what is best for them, which means that if somebody is going in the wrong direction, whom you love, and you have the means to redirect them back to the right path, you'd be remiss and unloving not to do so. This is where a lot of parenting goes wrong. Parenting uh, sometimes can go wrong when the parent believes that bringing discipline upon the child is hurting the child and they don't want to hurt the child because that's unloving and that is misguided love. If you love the child, the most loving thing you can do is to guide them and discipline them, which is exactly what the Lord does to us. We read in scripture that whom the Lord loves, he chastens as sons. And if he doesn't chasten you, it would be as if he was saying, I don't want any part of you. You don't belong to me. And it's the same thing within the church that when people are out of line, in this specific case that he's talking about, but in a moment here, I'll talk to a couple of others. And the church does nothing about it. That's not loving the sheep. That's not loving anybody. In fact, that's hurting the greater church. And this is what Paul was concerned about in this church because as people start to take advantage of the benevolence of the church unjustly, that's going to ultimately grow a root of bitterness within the hearts of people in the church, which is something the book of Hebrews talks about and says that you don't want that going because that leads to all other manners of sin. And so this is why he's so... He's so um, careful about it he's saying look if if they don't eat neither or they don't uh, work neither should they eat if they persist in this behavior you're to disfellowship them but he says in verse 15 don't count them as an enemy but admonish him as a brother see the objective in that disfellowshipping is not to harm that individual indeed it's to help them and so they need to know and sometimes this is hard to convey but they need to know look you're still our brother but your behavior is unbecoming of a brother in Christ. And so we have to ask you to step away from this church until you can get yourself on the right track. And understand, this is, this is the nascent church. The, the church is just in its very beginning years and decades. So it wasn't like if you didn't like what was going on in this church, you just go to the one down the road. In a lot of these places, there was the church, one and everybody who was a Christian in that area came to that church. So to be disfellowshipped from a church in that time would be a pretty significant thing. Um, so, yeah, you could have a lot of other reasons why people can be disruptive in the midst of the church. It's not just this one, but uh, I think more often than not, it's because someone is in the midst of the church pushing a doctrinal issue that is not scriptural and is contrary to what is being taught from the pulpit. And I've seen this uh, happen in, in uh, many contexts. Unfortunately, I've seen some of that here. Um, and I've tried to deal with it in, in a loving but firm way. Um, Paul wrote to in Titus 3, verses 9 and 11. He tells Titus, he says, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning 
being self-condemned. I think I told you the story once before about being at this men's Bible study that was actually in the office of my dentist. And uh, I thought all the pain came from the tooth work, but actually that Bible study was painful because I happened to mention, I was asked to lead the Bible study, so I did. And uh, I made a mention there about um, baptism. Baptism as an ordinance given to us by God to commemorate a, a work of God that's already taken place. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God, lest any should boast. Baptism is merely a celebration of something that's already happened. And I made that point. It wasn't even the point of the Bible study. No sooner did I finish the Bible study and I had four people around me in my face telling me that no, the rite of baptism is a mandatory condition precedent to being saved. And they were adamant about it. They, I, I would guess that they were, they were more aggressive with me on this point than an unbeliever would be if I was preaching Jesus to somebody who didn't want to hear it. And I'm thinking, what is the, what is the gain here? You know, I could take them to chapter and verse. They, they couldn't do that. And there are other doctrines that people will want to bang a drum about and will, and will um, really disrupt a whole church over it. I mean, I, I'll give you another one. Once saved, always saved. Kind of what we were talking about last week. If you are truly saved, the Bible tells us clearly that you have eternal life. Well, how long is eternal life? Forever. Forever. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that you are in the palm of God's hand and no one can take you out of there. There are plenty of people who profess that they're saved and they're really not. You can lose that because it's nothing to begin with. But I have, I, I have had times where people have, have wanted to shout me down on that point. And, and I do the same thing. I would do it anyway. If I can't take you to scripture on a doctrinal issue then don't listen to me because you're not here to hear from me, right? You're here to hear from God. But the, these are the, and, and what Paul is advising Titus in Titus chapter three is deal with that. Don't just leave that out there. Deal with that. I've had instances where someone wants to teach either the kids or teach here. And we, we have a discussion about, you know, where they stand and whatnot. And if there's a doctrinal issue, I'll say, I'm sorry. And, and that makes people very mad. But I would rather have one person be mad than multiple people being corrupted by doctrine that is not biblical. And this is exactly what he's telling him. And, and, and you know, there's another instance where you got to deal with folks in the church. And we're on the topic here of, of uh, church discipline. The brother or sister who's overtaken in trespass. Trespass is really... Another word for intentional sin. I know this is wrong, but this is in my life. This is something I do. This is something, it's, it's one of those little rooms in my heart. Lord, I give you my heart. We, did we sing that this morning? No, we, we didn't do that song, but we've done it in the past. Lord, I give you my heart. Well, I give you my heart, just not that little maintenance closet over there. That little room over there, just, it's not part of the deal. And, and so there are times when we could find believers in Jesus Christ, members of the church, who have that little room closed off to the Lord. 
and it becomes apparent. And it becomes something that, that now is visible in the church. And again, because it's difficult, it's uncomfortable to come to somebody and confront them about what's going on. Hey, brother, um, there's that, and then there's this. And they don't square. And dealing with that is always a challenge. But Paul the Apostle, in another one of his epistles, in Galatians chapter 6, says this. Verses 1 through 3. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a man, such a one, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to, do, to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, in that passage, Paul is actually bringing up a danger that we might not even be thinking about. The danger we're thinking about is, hey, that's wrong and that's going to corrupt other people who may think, well, if it's okay to do that, then I can do it too. And that is a danger and that's why you address it. But Paul is actually outlining another danger. This is why he says... You who are spiritual, restore the the fallen brother in a spirit of gentleness, not haughtiness, not self-righteousness, not aggressiveness, not, you know, ban at the wounded. No, in gentleness, in the spirit. Why? Because of the danger of what will happen to you, the spiritual cop. You will become self-righteous, you will become prideful, and you will be corrupted. And you can really spread that kind of mentality in a church. We've all seen it before, where you're in a church that has this this extraordinary, sharp-edged, legalistic bent. And people spend more time looking into the lives of other people than they do looking in the Word of God to look and see if there's something out of of order or, or amiss. And this is also uh, dysfunction in the church. Those that are teaching an error, I kind of touched that, but Paul addresses that in uh, Titus chapter 1. And this is, this is interesting. <laughs> Titus chapter 1 verse 10, he says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So he's saying, okay, there's people in the midst of the church that he's speaking to Titus about, um, that, that are coming from the circumcision. So they were perhaps Jewish and then uh, came into Christ or maybe they're false believers. But he says, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. See, he's speaking again to merchandising a false gospel, just the very thing we're looking at in our text. One of them, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans, now a Cretan is somebody from the Isle of Crete in Greece. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now get this, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Now you might say, gosh, Paul, that sounds kind of uh, ethnically bigoted. Is, is it racist? It's, you know, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And it's true. <laughs> well, if you look at the beginning of verse 12, he says, and one of them, that is one of the Cretans, a prophet, 
He is actually a, a, um, a poet, a Cretan poet named Epimenides. He actually wrote that about his own people, about himself. And it became a saying among people in the Isle of Crete. Oh, well, we're, <laughs> you can't trust us. We're, we're liars and, and evil beasts and gluttons, you know. And that was kind of the way in which people identified Cretans. Well, these individuals from Crete were the troublemakers who were teaching false doctrine. And so Paul said, hey, you know what you folks have said about yourself? Because Epimenides lived hundreds of years before this, and he was a well-known poet and, and uh, playwright. And they said, remember that guy? What he said? Well, it's what he said. You're all really like that. And, uh, and so he's, he's warning them about these kind of people. And notice the treatment here, it's firm. It's loving, but it's firm. It's loving, but it's firm. And this, I think, is, is the watchword for how we deal with issues within the church. It's never fun. Nobody likes to be the one to bring, bring down the, 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 the boom, so to speak. But notice he says there in verse 13, but as for, back in our text, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Um, verse 15, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The whole purpose of this, the whole heart of this is to keep the church functional, loving, and spiritual. Not to, not to you know, exorcise people or banet the wounded or anything like that. But when you have issues, you've got to address them in love with the hope that the malefactor is restored to fellowship. And if they are somebody who's truly not a Christian, it'll show because they'll go away and stay away. Now, he closes this beautiful letter with this benediction. Verse 16, 17, and 18 of our text. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I could really uh, imagine the kind of burden that Paul had for all of these little churches that he planted. I mean, uh, you know, it's not been that long in my life as a parent to have seen my, my three sons launch. You know, they, you, know you, you, you teach them as best you can. You give them whatever wisdom you have. Uh, you correct them as best you see how. But then the day comes where they're moving on and then they're married and having children and all that. And, and you, you just hang with bated breath on every major thing that's going on there, wanting the best, wanting, wanting, wanting them to prosper. And Paul felt that way about every one of these churches. And he knew the kind of damage the, e the evil one could do in their midst. And so he was doing his level best to protect them, to inform them, but to protect them. And, uh, and thank God we still have the word of God because he's protecting us as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. Lord, for your word, for your spirit, for the heart that you have for us, your people. And really, Lord, the heart that you have for the lost. Nothing that you've given Paul to say in these letters is, a, is in the interest of harming anyone. It is for the best interest of everyone both in the church and outside the church. Lord, I pray that this church, whether it be under my leadership or leadership to come, that we would always have the courage 
and the trust in you to deal with any issue, any and every issue that comes up, Lord, in our midst and to deal with it in a way that's loving but firmly holding on to the truth, Lord. Protect this church, Lord, from heresy, from false doctrine, from false practice, from being unloving, ungenerous, lacking empathy. Lord, give us the heart of Jesus that we might honor and glorify your name in this place, Lord. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Enjoy this rainy day. Amen.